You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to episode 92 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Last week, we looked at the federal timberclad's dramatic raid up the Tennessee River all the way to Florence, Alabama. We also talked about Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston's controversial decision to reinforce Fort Donelson on the Cumberland River, but not to fully commit himself to its defense. And then we left off at the end of the last episode with Brigadier General Ulysses S. Grant's army on the march, closing in on Fort Donelson, and with Flag Officer Andrew Foote's ironclads and transports steaming toward the same spot. As we mentioned last time, as Grant's troops advanced toward Fort Donelson on February 12th, it was a splendid day, blue skies, warm temperatures, and some men decided to leave their overcoats behind with their regiment's baggage, and others who started out with coats were soon wanting to shed every ounce of unneeded weight as they marched along, so the inexperienced federal soldiers decided to cast aside their overcoats and even their blankets, perhaps thinking they could somehow be retrieved later. At any rate, it was a decision they'd soon have cause to regret. There were only two narrow roads winding through the 12 miles of heavily wooded and hilly terrain between Forts Henry and Donelson. As Grant's army picked its way eastward along the Ridge Road and the Telegraph Road, the moment was ideal for the Confederates to launch a spoiling attack. Yet apart from some sporadic skirmishing, the rebels made no attempt to block or even delay the Yankees' advance. One reason for that was that every available Confederate soldier at Donelson was put to work getting the fort ready to meet an enemy attack. But another reason that no spoiling attack was made on Grant's force is that the Confederate command at Donelson was constantly changing. In fact, within the span of eight days, the command of the fort will change hands seven times. You guys already know how Colonel Adolphus Hyman was left as the senior officer at Fort Donelson after the retreat from Fort Henry. But then, on February 8th, Brigadier General Bushrod Rust Johnson arrived from Nashville and took over command. Johnson was an unlikely candidate to become a Confederate officer. He was born in Ohio in 1817 and raised as a Quaker in an abolitionist family. A West Point graduate, he served in the early part of the Mexican-American War, but he resigned from the U.S. Army in 1847 after being accused of using his position as a commissary officer at Veracruz to smuggle contraband goods. In 1861, Johnson was teaching engineering at the University of Nashville, and with the start of the Civil War, he cast his lot with Tennessee. Bushrod Johnson was commissioned a colonel of engineers in that state's army. 
and then in July of 1861, he received the same rank in the Confederate Army. He was promoted to Brigadier General in January 1862. Since Johnson knew that his replacement would be arriving at Donelson shortly, he mostly concerned himself with trying to organize the tons of supplies that were piled up at the steamboat landing at Dover, the town just a stone's throw up river from the fort. Bushrod Johnson's replacement as commander would be Brigadier General Gideon Pillow. Y'all will remember Pillow from episode number 82 and our discussion of the Battle of Belmont. Pillow, born in 1806 in Williamson County, Tennessee, was a lawyer whose political connections and whose friendship with President James K. Polk had won him an appointment as Brigadier General of Volunteers during the Mexican-American War. In 1847, Pillow joined the U.S. forces in the drive on Mexico City. While commanding a division in Winfield Scott's army, Pillow applied himself to the task at hand with admirable energy. Unfortunately, his prickly personality led him to quarrel incessantly with Winfield Scott, and then his inexperience in military matters caused the Army's West Point-trained officers to view him as singularly inept. Pillow's feud with Winfield Scott actually led to Pillow being court-martialed, but he was cleared and even confirmed as a major general. When Tennessee joined the Confederacy, Pillow, who was an officer in the state's militia, was appointed a brigadier general in the Confederate Army, but it says quite a lot that Pillow was the only Confederate general officer awarded a lesser rank than he had held in the Mexican-American War. In his book, The Battle of Fort Donelson, James R. Knight writes that Pillow, quote, at the time of the fall of Fort Henry, was in command of the supply base at Clarksville, just upriver from Fort Donelson, when the decision was made to evacuate the army at Bowling Green back to Nashville, General Simon Bolivar Buckner's division, General Charles Clark's brigade, and General John B. Floyd's brigade were all ordered to fall back through Clarksville, where they came under Pillow's jurisdiction. By the time the lead elements of these units began to arrive, Pillow had instituted a policy of forwarding all supplies and troops on down the river to Fort Donelson, which he did with these troops as well, without consulting their commanders. By February 9th, Pillow had taken his own brigade and moved on to Fort Donelson, replacing Bushrod Johnson and becoming its third commander in about 60 hours. End quote. When Simon Bolivar Buckner arrived in Clarksville and discovered that his division had been hijacked by Pillow and sent to Fort Donelson, well, let's just say that Buckner was less than pleased. Adding to Buckner's anger was the fact that he and Pillow had known each other since the Mexican War, and there was bad blood between the two men. Unfortunately for Buckner, Pillow's commission was senior to his by two months, but Buckner appealed to John B. Floyd, who outranked both men, and with Floyd's support, Buckner would set off downriver intent on retrieving his men from Fort Donelson. We've mentioned Simon Bolivar Buckner a few times already during the course of the podcast. Born in Hart County, Kentucky in 1823, he graduated from West Point in 1844. He saw action during the Mexican-American War and won two brevets for gallantry. In 1855, he held the permanent rank of captain in the U.S. Army, but resigned his commission that year to manage the family business in Chicago. Buckner returned to Kentucky in 1858 and commanded the militia in Louisville, before Kentucky's governor appointed him to lead the Kentucky State Guard in March 1860. 
After southern states began to secede from the Union, Buckner joined those who hoped to keep the bluegrass state neutral, but when the pro-Union state legislature ordered the state guard to disarm in July 1861, Buckner resigned in protest. After Confederate troops moved into Kentucky in September 1861, he accepted a commission as a brigadier general in the Confederate Army. So just to recap, once Albert Sidney Johnston decided to withdraw from Bowling Green, he, for whatever reason, fixated on personally directing that operation and leaving the command of Fort Donelson to a subordinate. He had four brigadier generals available for the job, Bushrod Johnson, Simon Bolivar Buckner, Gideon Pillow, and John B. Floyd. Bushrod Johnson arrived at the fort first and took over command from Colonel Hyman. Then, about 18 hours later, Pillow showed up at Donelson and assumed command. As for Simon Bolivar Buckner, he was only going to Fort Donelson to retrieve his division, which had been hijacked by Pillow. Buckner was supported in this by John B. Floyd, a Virginian, who was the senior of the four brigadiers, and as such, the overall command of Fort Donelson and the other Confederate forces on the Cumberland River fell to him. Longtime listeners will know that I hold a rather low opinion of Floyd, having previously referred to him on the podcast as a treasonous ass due to the fact that while serving as President James Buchanan's Secretary of War, he shifted military material to southern locations where it could then be conveniently taken over by the seceding states. And we've actually heard from several, let's call them pro-Confederate partisans, who took me to task for resorting to name-calling with regard to John B. Floyd. It kind of boggles my mind that anyone would defend John B. Floyd since his shenanigans while serving as Secretary of War were treasonous, and even his behavior here at Fort Donelson will prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that he was an ass. But anyway, in deference to the sensibilities of those who were offended, by my calling Floyd a treasonous ass, I will henceforth refrain from referring to him in that way on the podcast, and from now on, I'll simply refer to him as that useless bastard. Rich. Anyway, after starting the war by serving with little distinction in western Virginia, Floyd had come to Kentucky with five small Virginia regiments a few weeks before Fort Henry's fall. And now, as Albert Sidney Johnston busied himself in Bowling Green, overall command of Fort Donelson and the Confederate forces on the Cumberland River devolved to Floyd, and he found himself in command of upwards of 15,000 men. Floyd felt overwhelmed by his new responsibilities and was unsure of the strategy Albert Sidney Johnston wanted to employ. Floyd repeatedly asked Johnston for guidance guidance, even requesting that the commanding general come to Clarksville and assess the situation for himself. But Johnston, for whatever reason, couldn't be bothered and essentially told Floyd he was on his own. Without specific guidance from Albert Sidney Johnston, Floyd and Buckner in Clarksville hatched their own plan, which involved using their men to operate south of the Cumberland River between Dover and Clarksville, where they thought they might still be able to strike at Grant's line of communications while still keeping their avenue of retreat to Nashville open. The only problem with their plan was that Pillow had made off with their troops and taken them to Fort Donelson. 
Thus it was that Buckner set out for the fort to retrieve his division, and also Floyd's Virginians, leaving Pillow to hold Donelson with a token force as long as possible, and then get away as best he could. Needless to say, when Buckner arrived at Fort Donelson and gave Floyd's new orders to Pillow, Gideon Pillow was not a happy camper. Not only did the orders tell Pillow he was being made a sacrificial lamb, but the orders were being delivered by Buckner, a personal enemy. And so Pillow told Buckner he wouldn't obey the written orders and release the units from Fort Donelson until he had a chance to speak to Floyd in person. With that, Pillow left a frustrated Buckner in charge at the fort, yet another command change, and on the morning of Wednesday, February 12th, Pillow set off upriver to find Floyd. On the morning of Wednesday, February 12th, as Gideon Pillow was boarding a steamboat at Dover to set off in search of John B. Floyd, he didn't know that Grant's army was finally on the march, advancing eastward toward Fort Donelson. As Pillow departed the fort, he left Simon Bolivar Buckner in charge, with instructions not to bring on any major engagement with the Yankees. Later that morning, Buckner decided to send Lieutenant Colonel Nathan Bedford Forrest and his cavalry troopers out on the Ridge Road to see what the enemy might be up to, and lo and behold, within two miles of leaving Fort Donelson's outer defenses, Forrest ran into the lead elements of McClernand's division. For several hours, Forrest directed his men in some spirited skirmishing with the Federals, but then Buckner arrived on the scene and ordered the rebel cavalry back within the fort's defenses. The lively little clash between Forrest and the Federals was the opening round in the Battle of Fort Donelson. After the withdrawal of Forrest's troopers, McClernand's men began maneuvering to the south and then east, paralleling the Confederate lines, trying to stretch far enough to the right toward the river to cut off the rebels' avenues of escape from the fort. But it soon became clear that McClernand didn't have enough men to cover the area. To the north, C.F. Smith's division advanced down the Telegraph Road and arrived in front of the Confederate right. The rebels' far right flank was covered by an impassable swamp, so Smith's men extended to the south, paralleling the enemy defensive line and stretching toward McClernand. But it soon became clear that Smith didn't have enough troops to cover the area, and a gap of nearly a mile would separate the two federal divisions. The terrain around Fort Donelson was characterized by a series of ridge lines and valleys. The Confederate defense line ran along some of those ridges, and so Grant's army everywhere settled into position on the next ridge line over. At spots where streams and steep gullies ran at right angles to the ridges, both sides used artillery on nearby high ground to cover these breaks in their lines. In the early afternoon, as McClernand's and Smith's men were getting themselves situated opposite the rebel lines, they heard the sound of heavy guns firing on the Cumberland. That was the Carondelet coming upriver and shelling Fort Donelson. The Carondelet's commander, Henry Walk, wanted to let Grant know that he'd arrived, but Walk was also hoping that by throwing a few shells at the fort from long range, he'd provoke the rebels into firing on him and revealing the strength and position of their guns but the Confederate batteries remained silent and the Carondelet withdrew back downstream. By the afternoon of the 12th, Gideon Pillow was back at Donelson. 
He hadn't been able to find Floyd before the Yankees' approach and the opening of the battle caused him to return to the fort. With the Federals now beginning their investment of the place, Simon Bolivar Buckner, like it or not, was stuck at Fort Donelson. He was given charge of the rebel right, while Bushrod Johnson commanded the left. Since the outer defensive line was still far from complete, the Confederate troops would continue digging in all through the night. Now that Grant's army had arrived at the fort's doorstep, Albert Sidney Johnston ordered Floyd to take all the troops remaining at Clarksville and go to Donelson and take charge personally. When Floyd arrives at Dover early on the morning of Thursday the 13th, the command of Fort Donelson will change for the fifth time in six days. As Wednesday the 12th came to a close, the Federals settled in for the night as best they could. They slept on their arms, so no fires were allowed, and in the darkness, as a cold wind began to blow down from the north, bringing rain and sleet with it, many a Yankee soldier regretted leaving overcoats and blankets behind. A soldier in the 45th Illinois, Wilbur Crummer, later recalled, quote, The night was very chilly and cold. Our boys had left their knapsacks two miles to the rear and were without blankets. Cold, hungry, and disappointed, we shivered during that long, dreary night. It was our first experience, and we knew nothing about making ourselves comfortable. We learned better after a while and always carried our blankets with us. During the night, it rained and turned very cold. We were forbidden to leave the lines, hence could not go back for our blankets. End quote. It was little better on the other side of the lines. The rebels worked through the night, strengthening the fort's outer defenses, but although this activity may have kept them slightly warmer than the shivering Union boys across the way, it also denied the Confederates an opportunity for rest. At the end of that first day, Grant set up his headquarters in a house owned by a widow named Crisp. He had about 15,000 men on the field. By his own estimate, the Confederates at Fort Donelson outnumbered him by five to 10,000 men. In reality, the Union and Confederate numbers were about even on February 12th, with a slight edge of maybe one or 2,000 to the rebels. Right. But Grant had set out for Fort Donelson, even though he believed he was outnumbered by the defenders, because he thought either Pillow or Floyd was in command at the place, and he didn't respect the abilities of either one of them. At any rate, he knew he would be receiving additional men when Foote arrived on the scene with the Federal gunboats and transports. So in the meantime, Ulysses S. Grant was happy to settle his army in around Fort Donelson with no intention of provoking any major fighting until his reinforcements and the ironclads arrived. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavors, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt and experience a legendary culture. After a miserable night of rain and sleet, the weather turned again, and Thursday promised to be another pleasant day. B.F. Thomas, a soldier in the 14th Iowa, observed that, quote, February 13th was equal to a June day in Iowa. The birds sang, the squirrels chirped, and the first beams of the sun touched the leafless branches of the beech trees and turned them to gold, end quote. Before the first beams of the sun touched those leafless beech trees, a steamboat had deposited John B. Floyd at Dover. With Floyd's arrival to assume personal command at Fort Donelson, Gideon Pillow took over the Confederate left wing, bumping Bushrod Johnson to second in command of that sector. Simon Bolivar Buckner remained in command of the rebels' right wing. Having never received any guidance from Albert Sidney Johnston, Floyd was in over his head and he knew it, so Pillow and Buckner would exert considerable influence over him. To a large degree, Floyd left the actual management of the fort's defense to the other two officers. On the other side of the lines, McClernand and Smith used the early morning hours of the 13th to adjust their positions along the ridges opposite the outer defenses of Fort Donelson. But the two division commanders had orders from Grant not to bring on a general engagement. Foote hadn't arrived yet with the gunboats and Grant's reinforcements, and so the federal commander didn't want one of his subordinates starting a fight before he was ready. But since the Union and Confederate lines were in many places within easy rifle shot of one another, before long, soldiers on both sides started to match their marksmanship against one another. The sniping, or sharpshooting, became almost a contest as farm boys from Illinois and Iowa took shots at enemy soldiers, even as those enemies, boys from Tennessee and Mississippi, took shots at the Yankees. Few of the infantry soldiers were actually expert marksmen, but in his book, Where the South Lost the War, an analysis of the Fort Henry Fort Donelson campaign, Kendall Gott writes that, quote, Unique in Grant's army was a regiment organized, trained, and equipped for this specific purpose. The 14th Missouri Infantry, or Burge's sharpshooters, performed this service very effectively. Each member was dressed in gray with a felt hat adorned with a blackened squirrel tail. Armed with heavy Demick hunting rifles, these men were trained to hit a man-sized target at 1,000 yards. 
The men of Burge's sharpshooters spread out in small groups and took up advanced positions. Their fire was accurate and deadly, virtually halting any daylight work by the Confederates. End quote. The Federal sharpshooters found a Tennessee artillery battery with little cover to be a particularly inviting target. To combat the deadly sniping, Pillow called on Nathan Bedford Forrest to bring two of his companies forward and silence the pesky Yankees. Forrest's men were armed with breech-loading Maynard carbines that had a reputation for long-range accuracy, and with them the Southerners traded shots with the enemy marksmen for over an hour. At one point, Forrest supposedly took a Maynard from one of his men and knocked one of the Federal sharpshooters out of a tree at a range of 600 yards. The sniping and some shelling by both sides' field artillery wasn't the only shooting that was going on, though. Grant sent word to Walk to bring the Carondelet back upriver to have another go at Fort Donelson, and while he did so, the Army would be ready to take advantage of the diversion caused by the action over on the Cumberland. While the lone ironclad attacked the Rebel Fort's river batteries, Grant ordered C.F. Smith, on the Federal left, to launch a strong probe on the enemy lines to feel for any weak spots in the Confederate defenses. In response to Grant's request, the Carondelet was in position by 10 a.m., and from a range of about one and a half miles, she opened fire on Fort Donelson. Over the next hour or so, the Carondelet fired over 130 shells at the Rebels' water batteries. The previous day, the enemy had declined to answer the ironclad shelling, but on the 13th, the Confederates used two of their long-range guns to, to reply to the Carondelet's fire. The 10-inch Columbiad in the lower battery and a 6.5-inch rifle in the upper battery came to life. Although their crews had never fired the guns in anger, the men gradually began to get the range of the Yankee ironclad. Finally, a 128-pound shot from the Columbiad hit the Carondelet. After the shot pierced the gunboat's iron shell, it punched through the wood underneath the armor and produced a shower of splinters. Henry Walk reported that, quote, It passed through our port casement forward, glancing over our barricade at the boilers, and again over the steam drum, it struck, and, bursting our steam heater, fell into the engine room without striking any person, although the splinters wounded some half-dozen of the crew, end quote. After that hit, the Carondelet dropped back down river and anchored several miles below the fort. As the Carondelet began to fire at the fort, about a mile or so away, the 25th Indiana of Smith's division advanced to test the strength of the enemy's outer works. It was the Hoosiers' first taste of combat, and the rebel defenders treated them pretty roughly. On top of a nearby ridge line, waiting for the advancing Yankees, were the men of the 2nd Kentucky, commanded by Colonel Roger Hansen. The regiment was part of the Confederate Orphan Brigade, so named because these Kentuckians had chosen to fight for the South and so couldn't go home to their native state, which had sided with the Union. One soldier in the 2nd Kentucky, Louis D. Payne, recalled, quote, We were armed with old flintlock guns, loading with three small and one large ball, very deadly, but not carrying very far. Colonel Hansen sent this order to each of our captains, let no man fire until I give the word. It seemed as if the word would never come. The Yankees were almost upon us. Then we were allowed to turn our guns loose. We could see the enemy falling. Keep it up, cried our captains, and we did. 
End quote. The 7th and 14th Iowa advanced in support of the hard-hit 25th Indiana, but when a Confederate artillery battery added its shells to the rebel soldiers' buck-and-ball musket fire, all of the Federal regiments were pinned down and unable to move forward. B.F. Thomas, serving in the 14th Iowa, said, quote, The air seemed literally full of flying bullets. They screamed through the air above our heads and plowed into our ranks. We returned fire as best we could, but all the advantage was with the rebels. They were behind breastworks and were little exposed, while we were in plain view. End quote. That was the end of C.F. Smith's probe of the enemy defenses. It took some of the pinned-down Federals the rest of the day to work their way back to their own lines. Meanwhile, to the south, McClernand ran into trouble as he tried to stretch his lines farther around toward the river and tighten the ring around the rebel fort. On a nearby hill, a seemingly vulnerable salient in the Confederate line proved to be too much of a temptation for McClernand, and in an attempt to seize the dominant point of ground, he would eventually commit four regiments to the attack. But the Federals here ran into the same sort of buzzsaw that had stopped Smith's attack to the north. McClernand's attack was really stretching Grant's orders not to bring on major fighting, but in the end, the action tapered off, having gained little except adding to the knowledge that the Confederate defenses were formidable. The fierce Confederate reaction to Smith's and McClernand's attacks on Thursday, and the fact that McClernand clearly didn't have enough men to complete the investment of the fort to the south, led Grant to call up the three regiments he had left behind to garrison Fort Henry. That force would be brought forward by Brigadier General Lew Wallace, who is best known for the fame he gained after the Civil War as the author of the novel Ben-Hur. During the afternoon of the 13th, Walk brought the Carondelet back upstream and shelled Fort Donelson once again. The gunboat fired about 50 more rounds, but only one did any significant damage. Late in the day, one of the Carondelet shells struck a 32-pounder in the fort's lower water battery, dismounting the gun and killing Captain Joseph Dixon, who was hit in the head by a bolt that flew off from the wrecked gun carriage. About the second day of battle, James R. Knight, in his book, The Battle of Fort Donelson, explains that, quote, As night came, there had been several lively and bloody skirmishes, but the positions of the two forces remained basically the same, with the Confederates digging in even deeper and the Federals extending their lines to invest the fort as well as the town of Dover. As the sun went down, both Confederates and Federals again faced a common enemy, the Tennessee winner. The first night spent at Fort Donelson had been quite uncomfortable for both sides, but this second night would be simply brutal. In most places, the lines were so close together that no fires were allowed that could provide a mark for a sharpshooter or artillery piece. There were few blankets or overcoats in the lines on either side, so most of the men, having now been awake at least 36 hours, would get little or no sleep tonight. For the men exposed on the ridge lines, the north wind, rain, and sleet was agony. The next morning, it would be 12 degrees with three inches of snow on the ground. End quote. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Struggle for the Heartland, The Campaigns from Fort Henry to Corinth by Stephen D. Engel. 
You can find Engel's Struggle for the Heartland and all of our other past book recommendations by going to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And then Trace and I want to remind you that with these major battles that we cover, the battles like Fort Donelson, we think it really helps if you have a map in front of you so you can follow the action. So we're going to recommend once again that you pick up a Civil War atlas, or a couple of them, to have on hand as you listen to the podcast. If you're on our website and go back to the post for episode number 38, you'll find a list of some Civil War atlases that we've found to have varying degrees of usefulness. I think we listed them there with our favorites first and then down to the ones we like the least. Uh, Anyway, that's the post for episode number 38 at www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And then before we close, we want to thank Terry F. from Texas and Dennis K. also from Texas for donations this past week. Yeah, we appreciate that support and encouragement from the Lone Star State. Thanks, guys. And thanks to all of y'all for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I hope you'll join us again next week when we finish up the Fort Henry, Fort Donaldson story arc. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.